0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to look at firewalls. I know, it sounds too basic for an episode, but hang with me, and you might learn some nuances or capabilities of which you maybe were not yet familiar. I try to put enough learning in every episode to make it a wise investment of your time as a CISO or a security leader. So... I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and as always, please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. Now, the term firewall has been around a while. Originally, it was a literal wall designed to keep fires from spreading between adjacent buildings. Now, the the term has been used in both automobiles and aviation. It's a metal panel between the driver or the pilot in the engine compartment. But its use in computers was first mentioned, of all places, at least from what I could figure out, in the movie War Games. (laughs) Seriously, that 1983 film featuring Matthew Broderick as a teenage hacker using an Altair 8800. And I built one of these myself, so it's great to see one on the silver screen. Now, Later, Digital Equipment Deck issued a paper in 1987 describing packet filtering as a firewall. And then some of the early inventions in the late 80s and early 90s were by friends of mine, including Bill Cheswick and Marcus Ranham. In 1992, I did a consulting contract with a brewing company in Milwaukee, and they had purchased two RISC System 6000 devices running AIX, and they wanted to know what they needed to do, if anything, before connecting them to the Internet. So somewhere in my archives, I may have a copy of my early description Of what a firewall should be and it might be interesting to dig that out and see what I wrote 30 years ago. Now Peter Shipley filed patents in 1996 on network auto defense and reactive firewalls. Now today firewalls are ubiquitous and these early patented ideas are now generally available as patents expire after 20 years. Now from a business perspective a CISO needs to enforce proper access control and basically keep the bad actors out of their networks. My partner says CISOs are in the business of revenue protection. Keeping bad actors at bay is an easily understandable means of doing just that. Now, a firewall is kind of an overarching term, so we're going to go over that. There's more than one type of firewall, and as a CISO, you should be able to articulate and communicate the various kinds of firewalls how each of them works, what types of attacks each of them can stop, and basically why we need them. Essentially, a firewall reduces risk by limiting traffic flow past the network connection based on a set of rules that enforce policy. Okay, so that's my definition. I tried to get down to a little one-sentence, nice, neat, compact one, but I think that gets the point across. Now, firewalls can be used in a defense-in-depth approach where traffic may have to traverse multiple checkpoints before making it to a final destination. So think about it that way. Firewalls don't just go at the perimeter. They can use to segment your network and create secure enclaves within which you may operate without your traffic being shared with the rest of your organization. So let's take a look at basically six major classes of firewalls. First one to be a packet filter. Packet filters are the easiest type of firewalls to understand. packet filter examines traffic one packet at a time without any context and, based on a set of rules, either allows it, blocks it, or sends it to another device like an intrusion detection system for further analysis. An example of this type of firewall would be IP tables found in most Linux operating systems. Uh, Security groups and Amazon Web Services are another example. Now, this type of simple firewall is fast, but as you might imagine, it's not totally secure. In the early days of packet filtering firewalls, an attacker could fragment a packet into innocuous little chunks, each one individually passing a security test, but when reassembled on the far side of the firewall could cause some malicious intent. But they're good at filtering out noise and placing a packet filter as the first in a series of devices can reduce the workload for more detailed inspections further back in. So they still have a value today. Now, packet filters can be used to ensure confidentiality and improve availability. For example, let's say we need to stand up a test server for a data scientist, and this proof of concept may not have all the required security patches or agents installed in the box. So let's assume it's vulnerable. Now, if your security mandate stops the data scientist from piloting new technology because he's fielding an insecure device, then you basically kill innovation as well as your ability to partner with the business. However, security says, you know what? You're okay with you building a server that doesn't host sensitive data if you can show us a firewall rule that limits access to this machine. Now, even if the machine has a vulnerability, we don't really care if bad actors try because they can't touch it. And even if it does get exploited, there's really no sensitive data loss. Now, in addition to ensuring confidentiality, as I mentioned, packet filters also help ensure availability. If we limit who can talk to our devices, then we minimize denial-of-service attacks, which might flood our boxes. Remember, a device doesn't have to be unpatched to be vulnerable. The device only needs to be accessible. Another thing to remember about packet filters is they work at layers 3 and 4, the network layer and the transport layer. They do not work at the application layer, which means you can program it to block all traffic from China, but not block traffic that mentions the word China. Since there's no deep inspection of content, bad actors can misuse ports. For example, TCP and UDP port 53 is assigned for DNS traffic. Now, it doesn't mean that only DNS traffic can be transmitted on port 53. Basically, anything can go in and out of port 53. So bad actors might try to SSH on port 53 through your network. Uh, My late friend Dan Kaminsky demonstrated how to stream music over DNS. Now, a simple stateful firewall would offer no insight into this type of use. Another detail is that stateless inspection can block incoming SYN packets, which is the beginning of a TCP three-way handshake, but it can allow outbound, and that makes sense. No inbound calls, outbound calls are fine. Now, an incoming packet with the ACK flag set is assumed to be part of the existing connection. Remember, SYN, SYN, ACK, ACK. So, If you're an outsider attacker, what type of package would you send against a packet filter target? A SIN or an ACK? (laughs) You'd send ACKs. And by sending them to a variety of ports, looking for the proper response, which should be reset ACK, which is basically saying, sorry, this is not a valid connection, or getting no response, which means it's being filtered by the firewall, you can fairly quickly determine what ports are not being filtered and proceed accordingly. All right, so enough about packet filters. It's foundational, but hopefully that's good to know. Number two, stateful firewalls or dynamic packet filter. It's another firewall technology that's a step up from packet filters. It's designed to monitor active connections and then use that to determine if the packet should be allowed. Remember, basic packet filters allow any traffic through on an approved port if it's coming from an IP address that isn't blocked. Stateful inspection takes filtering one step further to say, hey, let's keep track of the entire conversation to see if what's happening is in its proper context. For example, an inbound act that was not part of an existing connection is not legit, so just discard it. (laughs) No reply. Now, more completely, a stateful firewall tracks the progress of a connection through its normal steps and ensures that the next packet makes it in is valid in that context. Now, I'm not going to get into a deep dive into TCP connectivity, but it's kind of a quick review, which you should remember. You can have a number of states for this connection. A closed state is basically not even a state. It's a non-state. It's because nothing's been going on. A listen is a state the host is in when it's waiting for a request to start. It's a really the true starting state of a TCP connection. After the first device sends the first packet with the flag SYN on, you get a SYN sent. And then you wait until you get a SYN received, which is really the SYN ACK coming back. And then once you've done SYN, CIN, SYN ACK, then the next packet, which is an ACK, is going to say established. And now your TCP connection is established. And now what happens is you go ahead and you move your data back and forth. And this connection could last a while. Now, of course, the interesting thing is, when was the last time that you looked for, like, really persistent connections? Because if you've got a connection that's been open for a day or two weeks or something like that, and your users go home at night, and th- something's up. You might have some remote control. But that's, that's a different episode entirely. When you're getting ready to hang up, if you remember, TCP has a three-way handshake. It's got a four-way close. And so the initial close is send a fin, fin flag, finish. So you go to fin wait one. And then after it receives that initial fin and sends back an acknowledgement, you get a close wait. Hey, you've asked me to close. I'm waiting for you to close your side. Then we'll send the second fin the other direction. It's in Finway 2. Then you get the last act. It's a state the host just sent the second fin. It's a graceful shutdown. And now we're kind of done. Well, at this point in time, what happens? You don't get a final answer to the last transmission. So you're actually in what's called a time wait. And that time wait says going to wait a certain period before it closes out. Basically, the closing state says we're going to wait for some predetermined period of time. It's usually, that's in a minute. And then you say, hey, okay, we said hang up. I haven't heard back. I guess they, we've hung up, and yep, connection's gone. So TCP gives you all these different states that you can tell. And from a context perspective in a stateful firewall, there's a lot you can do with all this. Now, remember that ICMP and UDP don't have state flags. So stateful firewalls have to use some other means of determining if a connection is still valid. And usually it's a timeout duration or something like that. So stateful firewalls are certainly a step up from packet filters, and both are reasonably fast, meaning they're not going to have a big impact on your network performance. However, attackers may try to overload a stateful firewall by creating thousands of simultaneous half-open connections, trying to fill up memory and cause erroneous behavior. But more importantly... Neither of these technologies look inside the packet, meaning they're really only focused on the packet headers at layer 3 and layer 4, and not the application data at layer 7. Now, for that, we'll need a more sophisticated technology, which you're going to get to in a moment. But meanwhile, let's talk about the third type of class of firewall, network address translation, or NAT firewalls. Now, NAT is kind of like an old-time switchboard from the 1930s, where the operator answers the phone, the person on the other end asks for an extension, operator manually connects the outside line to the inside line by plugging a wire into a socket, and when the call is over, a buzzer sounds, the operator pulls the wire, lets it go. All right, now let's imagine that conceptually, but automated. A NAT firewall has a similar characteristic in that an outside IP address cannot access an inside IP address directly. It has to go through some switch or switchboard, like we use as the illustration, that's going to translate that outside IP address to the inside IP address. One of the things that makes this work is RFC 1918, Request for Comment 1918, which specifies three ranges of non-routable IP addresses. 10.anything, or more precisely, 10.000 slant 8. The slant 8 means the first 8 bits of the 32 bits are locked down, and then the last 24 years to play with, giving you 2 of the 24th power about 16.7 million addresses to play with. That's ought to be enough for anybody. 172.16 slant 12, which is kind of tricky because it's halfway between the old Class A and Class B network. Let me come back to that in a moment. The one that we're a lot of us are familiar with is the 192.168 dot something dot something slant 16, meaning the 192.168's locked down the last 16 bits of yours to play with. You got 65,536 to play with. The 172.16 slant 12 means it's 172.16, 17, 18, 19, 20, dot dot dot, up to 31. Dot anything, dot anything. Now by agreement, every manufacturer Of internet equipment agrees that if a packet with a destination address in one of these three address ranges is received and it's outside in the big wild internet, it gets dropped. Throw it away. It has no reason being out here. There are a couple of values to this scheme. Now, if you think about it, one, since we've reached IPv4 exhaustion, because there really just aren't any more IP addresses left to assign. Although I just checked with AFRINIC and found out there are 17 blocks of unassigned IPv4 remaining on planet Earth. Four of them are a mere 256 addresses. So, we're out of bananas. I mean, we're out of IPv4. Now, we'll talk about IPv6 in some other future episode. But the good news is, being a NAT firewall, you can assign any number of these RFC1918 addresses, and you never have to pay for them. Secondly, like that switchboard, Inbound connections cannot directly reach an inside address. It has to go through the net, which allows an organization to apply security rules to the traffic. Now, in the early 90s, I remember we just assigned IP addresses to endpoints, which means if you had a range of IP addresses, because you really didn't pay a whole lot for them, I think they were free back then, um, you just connect everything. Because basically firewalls were still a nascent technology. They weren't really ubiquitous. Now the downside with everybody in your organization, having a routable address or a public-facing address is that anybody in the world could reach these internal systems directly, which is not a good feature. Hmm. Now, many home IP address ranges are in the 192.168, usually .100-something .100 range. Most businesses, hotels, airports, and coffee shops will offer an address in the 10-dot-something range. Now, anytime I see a 172.16, the 31. Assignment. I smile a little bit because that engineer knew to pick from the least well-known block. By the way, as a CISO, you should ensure that you are not using the 192.168 prefix in your internal corporate network. Now, if it hasn't happened yet, you'll likely have some conflicts with VPN users whose home IP address or mobile hotspot IP address can collide with your corporate addresses. I remember I had a client that actually used 192.168 for their internal network. I think they kind of set this thing up on the fly as they went along, and it was sort of an organically grown network. But when I connected in with my VPN, suddenly my PC shared the same IP address as the main file server, 192.168.1.2. Because on my little hotspot, which came out of the box is 192.168.1.1, the first connection was two. Well, I could either re-architect the entire business network or change my hotspot address range. And I chose the latter. And I decided to go with a 172.22.222.something address. And so if you do have 192.168 in your enterprise and you get an IP device conflict that messes up your network, now you might know why. Now, NAT does allow you to expose ports from private IP space through something called port address translation. I mean, perhaps you want everything to be private and that makes good sense, but let's say for a home user, your your kid wants to go ahead and host a video game on his laptop so all the friends can play a private game. Well, here you can use port address translation to open up a port on your kid's laptop to the world. Now, just remember, keep the laptop patched and secure so it doesn't become a gateway device into the rest of your network for somebody who kind of hijacks it. All right, number four, a proxy server. It's also known as an application-level gateway. It's another type of firewall, and it's basically a man in the middle between the inside network and the outside network. I mean, okay, fine, that's what all firewalls are, but it really goes one further. Imagine... If your kids wanted to browse the internet, they had to ask permission from mom and dad to visit each individual websites. Well, parents, I would think you'd say yes to YouTube for kids and probably no to porn sites. I would hope so. But this is typical for most corporate networks as well. So companies will buy a proxy server that has a giant list showing which websites are approved and which ones are not. The proxy server would also show how each site is categorized. For example, you can go to sitereview.bluecoat.com and see how semantic categorizes websites. In addition to categorizing sites, proxy servers also look for specific behavior. I mean, for example, if a site is only a day or two old, it's more likely to be risky than something which has been around for a couple of years. And in fact, one of the blocking rules may be brand new sites. We were getting some false positives last year, right at the outbreak of COVID. Why? All these new sites coming up, With valid information on COVID, as well as other ones that were set up with kind of fake information, we're triggering that and we're getting some false positives. So just be aware of the fact that that can happen and you might have to move in there and make an exception. The other thing to remember is that proxy blocking helps stop command and control infrastructure. Let's say an employee opens up an email that has a malicious file, which will beacon out. Well, the proxy servers can stop that beacon and prevent the bad actors from having the ability to send additional commands to their malicious tools, which are already inside your enterprise now. Now, as a side note, if any parents are looking for a free service to perform web filtering to keep your family members off of malicious or salacious websites, you can consider OpenDNS Family Shield or OpenDNS Home. By the way, the corporate version of OpenDNS is called Cisco Umbrella. I've got a lot of experience with it, and I think it's a really good product, and certainly uh, worth considering if you don't have one. Now, speaking of proxy server, I remember several years ago when Google added certificate pinning to their browser, which basically means if you open google.com with Chrome and the HTTPS certificate does not come back from Google's certificate authority, that is to say it comes back from somebody else's certificate authority, throw an error. Why would they do that? Anybody remember DigiNotar Notar back in 2011, the Dutch... Um, certificate Authority, they had their root certificate compromise, and the attackers used it to create certificates to other websites that allowed man-in-the-middle interception of HTTPS traffic. It also seems it was a government that had a history of suppressing civil rights of their own citizens. Um, yeah, Diki Notar went out of business. Uh, anyway, browsers go through the TLS handshake to ensure that a website certificate is valid and pretty much any trusted certificate authority or CA will do. Now, Google updated Chrome, uh, and what Bluecoat did was to act as a friendly man in the middle, and then when an internal user asked for HTTPS, google.com, it'd roll a certificate on the fly, create a user-to-proxy secure connection, and, of course, the user's uh, endpoint was told, trust the certificate issuing authority that was going with the Coat. Now what would happen is the traffic would be secure, user to the proxy. It would then be decrypted for inspection, make sure that it's safe. And on the outbound side, doing the NAT, which we've already discussed, creates a new HTTPS secure connection with the real server. Now think about it. Now you've got a legitimate man in the middle, and it solves the problem of how do you inspect encrypted point-to-point traffic? You make two point-to-points, and you just have a trusted thing in the middle. And, uh, well, when Google rolled out their HTTP public key pinning, known as HPKP, back in 2011, an organization that was using something like a blue code technology suddenly found out that the users couldn't reach Google. Well, it got fixed pretty quickly. But eventually, Google abandoned their support for this technology in 2018 due to the potential for abuse. All right, so that's a proxy server. Number five is a web app firewall, or WAF. probably heard of those. It's a firewall that protects the application layer and analyzes the content of the payload at the HTTP or HTTPS layer. It's aware of user, session, and application data, which allows it to intervene and hopefully stop web application attacks. Now, web app attacks like SQL injection, cross-site scripting, insecure deserialization, and others, would not be stopped by any of these previous firewall types. Now this is important because if you're using static analysis for your code, or dynamic application scanning tools, or DAS to find vulnerabilities in your code, no tool has 100% coverage. And the end result is that developers may not even know that they have vulnerabilities in their code, which means they're not going to patch them, which means that they're facing the outside world and eventually they may get compromised. So having a tool which proactively stops web application attacks is paramount to safeguarding your organization. I haven't looked it up in a while, but I remember under the PCI DSS, Payment Card Industry Data Security Standards, that a compensating control for having basically junior web developers who might code errors was having a web app firewall properly installed, saying that, hey, you could write an app that's vulnerable, but the WAF ought to go ahead and catch that attempt anyway. Now, the most common open-source WAF is Mod Security. Uh, this WAF has three versions, a free version with limited rule sets, one with rules from OWASP, Open Web Application Security Project, and the rule sets from commercial vendors. Now, this shows that the valuable piece of a WAF isn't the tool itself, but the rules that the tool uses to set the alerts. Now, the OWASP Mod Security Core Rule Set is a really good option for companies who lack the funds to purchase commercial WAFs. It's also the basis for cloud web app firewall services such as Azure Web App Firewall. Now, please remember as a CISO, it's important to understand how the WAF is implemented. Unfortunately, common and see many WAF features being disabled on mission-critical apps because it might, well, break the application. It's kind of like a police officer wearing a bulletproof vest, but then removing the ceramic plates because they make the officer too hot. Bad idea. You know, you might have to work with, uh, make that WAF coexist with the application, but please do. I mean, sometimes that means even making changes to the app. Sometimes it means turning off certain features in the WAF. I strongly advise every WAF implementation should be configured to block at least each of the OWASP top 10 web application attacks. In addition to stopping web attacks, a common feature we're seeing from web app firewalls is geo-blocking access from specific countries. Now, that's not unique to web app firewalls since you could block the IP ranges from countries with a packet filter. Now, the reason why it's so important is because as soon as you talk about critical applications with regulators there's really a stronger focus on confidentiality. So, for example, let's say your website is focused on U.S. customers. You probably don't have a reason to allow traffic from Iran or Cuba because they're on the Treasury OFAC embargo list. So companies use a WAF to help meet anti-money laundering requirements. And WAFs also provide visibility into how your web applications are being attacked. And this is also important because you have to demonstrate compliance on the safeguard to meet PCI, HIPAA, and even GDPR standards. All right, number six, next-gen firewalls, or next generation, also known as NGFW. It's a firewall, plus an IPS, plus a VPN, plus anti-malware, plus the traffic inspection, uh, plus a kitchen sink, well, not quite. But this firewall is almost like a Frankenstein mashup of all these multiple security products. Takes packet filters, adds stateful inspection, deep scans packets, meaning it's going to examine the content of the payload, adds intrusion detection and prevention, website filtering, SSL or TLS, really, decryption, WAN and LAN optimization, and maybe even more. Now, you might think that next-gen firewalls would have a lot of web app firewall or WAF technology, but a lot of next-gen firewalls usually tend to focus on the network and the transport layers of the OSI model, layers 3 and level, layer 4 just like our first two firewalls we talked about, packet filters and stateful inspection. And unlike a web app firewall, which is really focusing at layer seven, the application layer. Now, there are some next-gen firewalls that have web app firewall capabilities, so it can be confusing. The key focus of a next-gen firewall is to identify malware within the content of packets and stop it before it enters or leaves the network. This is similar to intrusion protection systems, but has the benefits of even more functionality. The key thing to remember is if you're thinking about one firewall with all the bells and whistles, you probably should go look at a next-gen firewall. big thing to remember in selecting a web app firewall is one of the most important decisions as a CISO. Web app firewalls, antivirus, endpoint detection and response, or EDR solutions are really some of the most important security tools to protect and identify cyber attacks in the workplace and give you your first line of defense. So let's recap, we talked about six different types of firewalls. Number one, packet filters. Fast, simple, they focus on IP and port blocking, a simple set of rules, if then else, if then else, if then else. Number two, a stateful inspection firewall. This is gonna look at active connections, consider the context, and particularly for TCP, can go ahead and make some decisions to say, yeah, that's in-state or that's out-of-state. This looks good. This looks suspicious. And now, by looking at the context, it can make a better decision. Number three, network address translation firewalls, or NAT. These are tools that allow private networks to connect to public ones, or you could even connect a private to a private. Nothing says that you have to have them all externally facing. These type of NAT firewalls could be used within your infrastructure to create secure enclaves, or they could also be used in the cloud environment to go ahead and have private networks that are not facing uh, the Internet gateway, but still need to go ahead and communicate. Number four were proxy servers. You should classify web traffic into topics that might be allowed or not allowed. They can have big groups of subject areas, as I mentioned, a couple of them. You could block things saying, hey, that's a porn site or this is a sports site. I think in my Cisco umbrella, I've got close to 50 different things that can be set. And occasionally you get false positives and you have to constantly be tuning these things. Number five is a web app firewall. It's gonna block, well, basically web application attacks. Looking up there in the network layer at layer seven, presumably these are things that are coming in on port 80 and 443, but more importantly, we're not so focused on the IP address or the fact that maybe it's coming out on a weird port because if you're coming in on a weird port and you don't have a web app listening, it's just not gonna work. So as a result, it's kind of looking at the content. Is somebody screwing with your system? And the next generation firewalls, well, they kind of try to do everything. Now remember each firewall type has its unique benefits for organizations. Packet filters, block stuff with really low overhead. Stateful inspection is great at preventing denial of service attacks, for example. Network address translation can keep things private from harming internet, from harmful internet attackers. And proxy servers will minimize the damage if somebody well, clicks on a bad link found on an email and uh, tries to get a remote command and control connection going. Web app firewalls can stop harmful web app attacks, basically, your own applications. And next gen firewalls offer a, lot of, offer a lot of functionality included in these other varieties. Now, each firewall type also has its limitations. I mean, packet filters have no idea what's going on through them. Stateful inspection does not have deep packet inspection. Network address translation makes things eternal, but oftentimes you still have to open egress rules for your networks. Proxy servers often struggle with new sites or VPNs. Web app firewalls are really focusing on securing web applications, but don't really focus on protecting your endpoints. And next-gen firewalls often can add a lot of latency to your application because it's performing all this deep packet inspection. Okay, wow, so half an hour of firewalls. Did you learn something? Did you hear something new that you hadn't heard of before? Hopefully you did. And if so, then I thank you for your time. And as always, thank you for listening. Again, this is your host, G. Mark Hardy for CISO Tradecraft. And until next time, stay safe.